0: When evangelist John Wesley was returning home from a service one night, this was in the you know, mid-1700s, um, he was robbed by a thief in the street. Uh, and he found his victim, the, this robber found his victim to have only a few dollars uh, and just uh, nothing really but some Christian literature and stuff, and it was really kind of a, a waste And the guy just, the bandit, you know, just took off and was ready to run. But Wesley said, wait, wait, I have more to give you. (laughs) And so the thief stopped, surprised, the robber paused. and, um, And he said, my friend, you may live to regret this sort of lifestyle that you have right now. He said, but if you ever do regret that, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's what I have to give you. And the guy looked at him sort of puzzled and then just took off and kept running. But as the thief hurried away, um, Wesley went home and prayed that night that his words would uh, bear fruit in that guy's life. Well, years later, you guessed it, Wesley was greeting people after a Sunday service. Many, many years later, um, when he was a- approached by a stranger, he was, looked like a well-to-do businessman, uh, successful, um, who was a believer in Christ. And, um, and he was the same man who robbed him years before. and. And the guy looked at Wesley and said, I owe it all to you, said the transformed man. He said, oh no, my friend, Wesley exclaimed, not me, but the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. It was, it was back to the word that he shared. You know, it was about the blood of Jesus. You know? the, the, I love the, just the power of the truth of the word that it has in people's lives. Um, there's nothing in the world that can change a life, I think, more than the word of God. The, the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, you can read whatever you want and you're not gonna have as much power as the Bible packs. And that's why it's so great to be here with you on a Wednesday night studying scripture here in Matthew chapter 14. We, we see the power of God's word just once again and, and we have much to learn in this chapter. So let's take a look, Matthew chapter 14. We come now, sadly, to the end of John the Baptist's life on earth. Um, And the beginning of his eternal life in heaven, Uh, and we're going to see that here in this chapter. It's it's, uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus, and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and there is no, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Um, Interesting. Um, you know, they, th- th- this guy thinks that Jesus is sort of John the Baptist come back from life. It's interesting, we're gonna get into this here in a few chapters, um, where people, hearing what, who people think Jesus is, and boy, that's gonna be a educational study, because boy, they thought of a lot of people that Jesus might be. But one of those, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, this guy who, you know, Herod is gonna, we're gonna find him to be somewhat paranoia uh, of, uh, as far as his demeanor, and, uh, and he's thinking, oh no, John the Baptist came come back to life. And, and here's the story. It says in verse three, for Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for uh, Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, it is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he uh, would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, um, the daughter of Herodias um, danced before them and pleased Herod. Uh, has anybody creeped out yet? Uh, this is creepy. this is a creepy story uh it's it 's as creepy as our you know um, you know drag queens dancing in front of children and like it 's that level creepy if you ask me uh, here's here 's the guy. well, we 'll get into who this Herod is in a second, but um, but you know he 's got his niece, technically. But also his stepdaughter. If you do the math on this, uh, dancing suggestively. It's not just that she's doing the Charlotte. Char, what's the What's the Charleston? Uh, she's not doing. No, it's not that at all. It's whatever it is. It's, it's she's she's uh, seductively dancing in front of him, and it pleases the creeper. And it says, "Sorry, I'm adding my my commentary here too, too much, but." Um, But verse seven, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being before instructed of her mother said, give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry nevertheless for the oath's sake and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given unto her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body. That is, John the Baptist's disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Now, remember, if you would, uh, that you know John the Baptist and Jesus were, Jesus were cousins, uh, technically. Um, but we see the end. Of John the Baptist. Now, now we need to remember. This is an important thing because you know we see a lot of great people in history, whose lives come to an end. We have big funerals and stuff like that. But do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven? He said, "Verily I say unto you that there's among among them that are born above women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist." That's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. So this this is like the greatest. Jesus uh, uh, said that John the Baptist, no one greater. Uh, Born among women. Why, Why did this happen? You know, here's a guy who faithfully served God, and one might say, well, look how it turned out for him. Why should I serve God if it just ends me up, you know, that's not a way to get ahead if you're John the Baptist. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's, it's a lose-lose if you're following Jesus and you're beheaded. But one of the things we have to remember is that, um, that, that, you know, it's not about this life. We have to remember, we don't count our lives dear to ourselves, as so many people in this world. Being really scared for your life is actually a very worldly sort of kind of um, perspective, uh, it's like, oh, I got to try to stretch my life out as long as I can possibly do it. Um, you know, I'm not arguing that we should be clumsy and and even you know, um, you know, suicidal or or uh, you know, trying to live on the edge. Uh, you know, stupidly. But at the same time, this this radical fear of death that we have in our culture that's not really a godly notion. Um, But John the Baptist lived for the the life to come, and that's the way we all should. Um, And he would would live, his purpose was to point the way to Jesus. Um, And you know, it's interesting because um, he was the last of the prophets. uh, It says that in Luke, perhaps clearest. But in Matthew chapter 11, do you recall, he said, for Jesus and for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So the prophets of the Old Testament rule in a different, or uh, operate in a different role than the New Testament prophet. And we've done studies on that, the difference between an Old Testament prophet and New Testament prophet. And if you're interested in that, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we did a whole study on the one who prophesies in the New Testament, what his role is. It's different than the Old Testament. J the B was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Um, And so he would point the way to Jesus. And interesting, even though he was pointing the way to Jesus, he was very different than Jesus, if you think about it. I mean, Jesus was hanging around with wealthy people uh, and, you know, people that were sick. And, and like he'd go to Matthew's house for a party. Remember the party at Matthew's house that Jesus was at? And all the enemies came and said, oh, you know, he's how, how is he hanging out with all these prostitutes and stuff? John the Baptist was never seen in something like that. He was out in the wilderness with bug's legs twitching between his teeth, you know, as he just smiled at you and, and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is you know, at hand. Like wearing camel's hair and eating wild locusts and honey. That's what the Bible says about John the Baptist. Um, Jesus seemed to hang around uh, villages and, and towns where people were. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching there, but he was preaching until his, um, uh, you know, uh, Herod uh, took him in and put him in prison. Um, now, what's the deal with Herod? We, it, it is helpful to know who the Herods are. Um, If you're a Bible student, it can be a little confusing who the various Herods are. Um, This is not Herod the Great in Matthew chapter two, verses one through 17, you know, that killed all the babies there that were born in that region of Bethlehem, different guy. Um, Who was Herod the Great? Let's start with him. Um, He was this horrible little dude. Um, In fact, he was four feet, four inches tall. And history tells us that he had a putrefying smell about him, as it turns out. Uh, like all throughout history, people that were in his presence like, whoo, boy, uh, worst smell of any person that ever smelled. But he was very powerful. Um, the Herods were Idumeans, which is kind of a weird thing to talk about, but they were sort of Jews, but sort of on the Roman side and on the Romans' payroll. And the, the Jews hated them and the Romans didn't really trust them. They were kind of these leaders in those regions, uh, but in sort of a, a weird thing. They, they were trying to gain the favor of the Jews, but they often did things that were really against the Jews, like killing all their babies in Bethlehem. Uh, that's a little problem, wouldn't you say, if you're a Jewish person? Would you reelect that person after, uh, uh, I mean, like that's the thing, they, they weren't popular. Um, so um, in Matthew chapter two, you know, fear, fear, uh, fearful of being overtaken, that's why, um, Herod, in Matthew 2:16 uh, ordered that all the babies would be slain. Uh, he was paranoid, just like his sons and his grandsons would be. Uh, by the way, Herod the Great killed most of his wives and some of his sons. Uh, um, Caesar Augustus made this claim. He was a contemporary of Herod. Uh, back in Rome, Caesar Augustus said, it is be- better to be Herod's pig than his son. Um, because uh, at least he liked his pigs, and and uh, and he didn't like his sons. But um, Herod the Great uh, died shortly after Jesus was born. Um, that's why Jesus and Joseph and Mary left Egypt and came back and lived in Nazareth. Once Herod the Great was dead, the coast was clear, and that brings us to four notable sons of Herod the Great, and this is where um, you get this word that's in our text here, um, where Herod this one, this Herod is called Herod the Tetrarch um, why a Tetrarch? Because um, there were four sons in a region and those sons were, and these are the four Herods that are notable That you, you especially if you go to Israel it's really helpful to know who these Herods are uh, because you, we, we're going to see all the places, when you go to Israel with us we're going to see the places where these guys ruled, and um, and the, all the stories that kind of involve the various guys. But the, the probably the biggest ones that we need to know is Herod uh, Philip I and uh, Herod Antipas. Uh, the other ones are important too, but um, upon Herod the Great's death, these four became in charge of four sections of the kingdom. That's why they're called techtarks. Um And tonight we're reading about Herod Antipas, okay? That's, that's just, you might make a note of that in your Bible or in your notes Herod Antipas, he oversaw the Galilee region uh, and um, what was called Pira or parts of Jordan, uh, modern day Jordan today. And he, um, he also um, had a, a sort of a, a fortress. That he lived in, um, and this is an interesting place. Herod Antipas. Um, this is an artist rendition of him, uh, but they do a good job making him look fairly evil in this picture. Um, notice the pointy hat. Just saying. Um, uh, it, it, to me, it makes everyone look evil that's wearing a pointy hat. But, um, but he um, he had a, a place where he settled. Uh, um, Herod the Great, by the way, um, built all kinds of. Um, you know, fancy fortis, fortresses and stuff. But, but Herod Antipas um, was dwelling in a place called Machar- Macharis, uh which is east of the Dead Sea. Um, in fact, um, we actually go to this region. When, when we go see Mount Nebo, where Moses looked over Israel before the people went into the Promised Land. When I go to Israel, I bring everybody up to Mount Nebo and we look from the very spot where Moses looked over. And then as you go just a little south of there, there's this fortress called It's way up on a cliff, huge mountain, looking way down on the Dead Sea. Uh, toward toward Israel. Um, uh, If you're at this place, by the way, you can see, even though it's many, many miles away, you can see the lights glowing over the mountains of Jerusalem from Jerusalem. uh, If it's clear enough, it's a clear enough day, you can see that. Um, But it was sort of a fortress and see this bump here of this mountain? That's what's called a tell. And, and we don't have them here in America because civilization wasn't around here for that long. But because of thousands and thousands and thousands of years, they built civilization on civilization. And there's all these mounds uh, that they just kept building on destroyed rubble. It's it tells are one of the weirdest things that we just don't have here in America, but they're all over the ancient lands. But this was one of three main fortresses that Herod the Great built. Um, he built Masada. Um, the, one, the one on the, the, the left there is um, the Herodian, Uh, that's where they found Herod the Great's bones in a sarcophagus, uh, kind of interestingly enough. And he built that. That mountain was built by slaves. Um, And remember I told you the story where Herod stood there on that, place said, I wanna be able to see Jerusalem from here. And they said, yeah, but we have to build like a giant mountain. He said, exactly, get the slaves. And so they built the Herodian and that's where he actually lived most of the time. The one on the right is Masada. I also bring our group to Masada. You gotta see Masada if you go to Israel. Herod the Great never actually went there, but he built it. It was his, it was, it was his last resort in case he got taken over by you know, his enemies, he would run to Masada. And he had a very fancy palace. Up on uh, Masada, so during the first century, uh, Herod the Great being gone, the various Herods took you know those places. Well, this guy Herod Antipas took this place called Machaerus, and um, and he was there because he was paranoid. Um, but what's interesting is um, uh, Josephus. I always talk about this guy. <clears throat> Josephus wrote the books of Antiquities, and he was a first century. Um, historian that recorded for the Romans uh, history of that region. And it's always interesting to compare Josephus' writings with the Bible. The Bible's inspired Word of God, so you can absolutely trust that. Josephus wrote a bunch of stuff that um, scholars hate him because he confirms what the Bible says over and over and over and over and over again. Um, And it's really kind of cool, uh, not being a Christian, writing things. But um, uh, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army uh, came from God, and, and this is what Josephus wrote about Herod Antipas uh, and the beheading of John the Baptist. This is a secular view, not the Bible's true view, but a secular view. Let me read to you what he says. He said um, uh, he, he said, uh, God was punishing Herod Antipas for what he did against John called the Baptist, the dipper. They called him the dipper or the baptizer. Uh, that's what it means to baptize, to dip in water. That's what Josephus calls him, John the Baptist or John the, the dipper. Uh, he wasn't skinny dipping. Uh, uh, for Herod had, had him killed, although, he, this is jo- Josephus speaking, although he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue, both as to justice toward one another and reverence toward God, and having done so, join together in washing. That's the baptism. When others masked about him, for they were very greatly moved by his words, Herod Antipas, who feared that such strong influence over the people might carry a revolt. So they seemed ready to do anything that John the Baptist, uh, the dipper, uh, should advise. Um, So he believed it much better to move now uh, and put him in prison than later and have it raised to a rebellion and engage him in actions he would regret. Um, And so John, out of Herod's suspiciousness, was sent to, in chains, to Machaerus, the fort previously mentioned, and there put to death. But it was the opinion of the Jews that out of retribution for John, God willed the destruction of uh, the army um, so as to afflict Herod. So it's funny, even in the secular writings, they were saying, well, he killed the guy named John the Baptist and the God of the Jews was retaliating against Herod Agrippa because of what he did to John the Baptist. Kind of interesting extra biblical history there, if you ask me. But, um, but remember, by the way, um, John the Baptist's ministry, um, a lot of people think he was up there in Galilee, baptizing people in the Galilee region, but he really wasn't. Um, John the Baptist did his ministry in the wilderness of Macarius, where that fort was. He, if you really wanna know where Jesus was baptized, it wasn't the pretty area where a lot of churches go and baptize people in Israel. Uh, It's a nice location of the Jordan River and it is the river, but it's it's farther south where Jesus was baptized and he was baptized on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River down near the Dead Sea. Um, That's where John the Baptist did his ministry and preached about Jesus. Um, Now, the thing that John the Baptist is perhaps one of the most noteworthy things is he was a guy, you know, when you hear Jesus call John the Baptist the greatest man born among women, you have to say, well... What made him so great? Well, the first thing is he pointed to Jesus all the time. It was all about Jesus. John the Baptist said, you know, um, I must decrease so that he might increase. It was all about Jesus, which is something we should all really remember in our lives. The more your life is about Jesus, the more your life has substance and worth and value. Um, And then also another thing noteworthy of John the Baptist, he was into righteousness and purity. And he wasn't afraid to call his spade a spade. John the Baptist called it out. Here he calls out the king of the region saying, the woman you're living with right now, you're living in sin, king. And he calls him out and Herod hates that. That's, now that's the biblical account here of what's happening here. Um, where, where it's kind of funny in verses three and four, it says, for Herod laid hold on John, bound him, uh, put him in prison for Herodias' sake, the, his brother Philip's wife. Now what is Philip's wife? Um, Now, remember I told you about Herod Philip. Um, Well, that Herod, his wife was Herodias. um, And there's quite a soap opera here in verses three and four. Um, And it basically, Herodias, who's married to Herod Philip I, also had a daughter with him named Salome. um, And the two ended up um, uh, um, marrying Herod, or I should say uh, Herodias, Basically what happened, Agrippa said, hey, uh, send, send your wife over to visit us over here at Herod Agrippa's palace. Uh, but when she, they came, they fell in love, even though um, she was already married. You see that problem there? Uh, and they fell in love. And so Salome and Herodias came and moved in with Herod Agrippa and were acting like uh, you know a happy little family. And John the Baptist saying, y'all are living in sin. He calls them out. Isn't it interesting when people call out sin. There's some people that are really glad for it, call a spade a spade, but there's other people that really resist. It's funny how I've found as pastor you know, role, sometimes you say stuff that's just biblical and right, but it's funny how there's people that really wanna kick against the truth. And they think that they, you know, well, I know that this is unfair, what you're saying. Well, it's the Bible, yeah, but, you know, and then people get really upset about this. Uh, I love that John the Baptist calls him out um, and, um, and it's interesting because Herod Agrippa, he's a, a man of real, if you ask me, he lacks constitution. He's, he's just a real uh, wimpy leader. And there's evidence of that. John the Baptist calls about fearing the Jews. He doesn't, he doesn't kill John the Baptist. He actually just puts him in prison. So he already is afraid. Um, and if you kind of compare J the B to Herod Antipas, Herod was a powerful Tetrarch. Uh, of the whole Galilee and Jordan area. John was just a prophet, a voice one crying in the wilderness, cousin of Jesus. He had his own disciples, um, not a big following, uh, you know, compared to Herod Agrippa, regent of that whole area. Why was this man so afraid of John the Baptist? He was afraid of the crowds. That's kind of interesting. Um, in fact, the, the scriptures tell to, told us here that he was a fearful man. Look at verse three. Um, It says, for Herod, um, you know, put him in prison for Herodias' sake, uh, his brother Philip's wife. He he puts him in prison because he's more concerned about Herodias being happy. Uh, Also, verse five, he feared the multitude, it says there in verse five. Um, And verse nine, he made an oath, and those that sat by were watching, so he had to keep his oath because everybody was watching. Do you get a sense this guy didn't have his own personal conviction? He was more worried about what everybody thought about him, uh, more worried about, I love John the Baptist as the opposite of that. He, he seemed to be fearless. Uh, the wild man with camel hair and locust. And, and he called out in Luke chapter three, verse seven, he called out the religious leaders, you vipers, generation of vipers, he calls. The, like John the Baptist was not a, a, afraid. Um, and, and, you know, um, by the way, all the Herods kind of displayed that wishy-washy, spineless man sort of demeanor. Um, Herod Agrippa, you know, being the grandson of Herod the Great, kills, you know, uh, John the Baptist, also kills the apostle James. Herod Agrippa II, um, the great grandson of Herod the Great, uh, put Paul on trial there in Acts 25. But these guys are wishy-washy men, these Herods of the Bible. And the reason I kind of point that out is I I wonder if we need more J the Bs today, people that will call it like it is and just say what is true. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch politics because I think, you know, whether you love him or hate him, like Donald Trump, one of the things that people, I think, some people liked is he was not afraid to say what was on his mind. Now, that got him in all kinds of trouble too. Um, but, but he almost took it to a crazy level of speaking his mind. And, and, and I think there's a lot of the world that's shocked. Why would people vote for a guy who's just let, whatever. I think there's a lot of people who are kind of sick of People that were not saying anything of substance, like just saying stuff, but never doing anything. Like it not, didn't have any substance. And so, um, we're living in a day, I think, where people, and maybe people don't even realize this, they're hungry for someone to just speak the truth. Now, now, um, I think that Trump blew that when he spoke things and was maybe a little too, too brutal or said things that, you know, I mean, we could judge that and criticize that, but here's where it really becomes a problem. I think a lot of pastors have become afraid to speak the truth. Like they won't say what the Bible actually says. Homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. Like they won't say that. Oh, I can't even believe you just said that. Well, I just did. And it's not because I'm a bigoted homophobe, as some people would try to say. I'm just telling you, here's what the Bible says. Here's what God thinks about these things. And this is what the Bible says. And, here, and here's the thing. Um, the Bible also says we're to love one another. So it's the world that tries to put the false words in pastor's mouth. But you know what? I'm not really afraid of that, and nor should any pastor. I think we should speak the truth. Yes, speak it in love, but we need to speak it all the same. Um, I think people are really hungry for, for people to you know, speak boldly, whether it's your pastor or your president or any leadership role that you might find yourself in. Um, to just call things like they really are. I think we've become very wimpy. Uh, that's a very godless sort of um, worldly sort of thing to, to mince your words. Jesus talks about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, and yet uh, that's, we've gotten so far away from that. I'm not even sure we recognize uh, what a person that really speaks the truth. Remember what Proverbs um, tells us in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare or hook in the nose. Remember that? But uh, whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. I think we need more J the Bs, people uh, who will tell it like it is and, and call it out for what it is. Compromises in those uh, of those in authority um, have caused all kinds of problems, whether it's parents, teachers, politicians, you know, with all the agendas, uh, you know, the LGBTQ groups and how, uh, you know, the over sexualization of children and what we're watching happening. Like, people just need to start speaking up and saying, that is really wrong and sinful. And if we don't, we're complicit, I think, in what's happening. Um, you know, it's interesting. These, these Herods are a good example of what not to do. And they're the, they're the ultimate in compromise. John the Baptist didn't compromise. He wasn't a man of compromise. Herods, the Herods, Herod Agrippa was. How does compromise occur? Let's talk about that just for a second. I, w- I wanna give you a few thoughts on compromise. When you, when you start to become a, a person who's blown by the wind of, of whatever, uh, that's always a bad thing. The first one I'd like to add to my list is um, uh, comp- compromise occurs when, number one, a failure to commit ahead of time to do the right thing. If you are, haven't already made up your mind whether you're gonna do this or that, um, you're probably going to do that rather than this. Um, it's a funny thing. Um, uh, you know, our, our uh, military personnel, uh, our, you know, top tactical teams, you know, the SEAL teams and stuff, I'm told um, that they, um, the reason they're successful is they kind of imagine every possible scenario that they can even think of, and they they practice and they go through training over and over and over again to where um, it's not a choice of what you're gonna do. You, you kind of always have, already have envisioned what you're gonna do in any given situation. Um, but, but I think sometimes we as Christians have to think, well, what am I gonna say if I'm a teacher in a public school and they start telling me to talk to children about gender uh, identity uh, and get into some of these weird godless sort of notions. Have you made up your mind yet And what you're gonna say when your principal or superintendent tells you what you're gonna do there? Because it's coming, if it hasn't already, it's coming. And for some of you, you might have to say, well, I'm not gonna teach that curriculum. Um, you know, and and then, then you have to, realize, well, what if I lose my job? Well, you should have already thought about that. Uh, you should already think about that scenario and think about what are you gonna say, what are you gonna do when that moment comes? Um, And that's just one of a bazillion examples we could give, but a failure to commit ahead of time to do the right thing. Um, A lot of people fail because they really weren't ready for it. Um, You gotta decide long before the temptation comes uh, if you're not gonna be a person of compromise. Um, Remember Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign? If you're old like me, uh, you might remember that. But as a Christian, you need to kinda get to that place of saying, just say never. Uh, like, like not just say no, because I don't trust myself in the moment to say no. When temptation comes, if I, if I, well, I might say no. I don't know. No, just say no. Just say never. Purpose in your heart. There's scriptures that I'm reminded of. First Corinthians 2, 2. I love how Paul says, for I determined. I love that word determined. Not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul would measure everything that he would do around Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love Daniel chapter one, verse eight. But Daniel purposed in his heart. That's that just saying Never that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. It's like he made himself a decision long before the meat was in front of him, um, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the prince of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So determined to not compromise, purpose for not compromise. That's, a, that's the first one. So failure to commit ahead of time to do the right thing. Number two, understanding, uh, pardon me, underestimating evil and flirting with dangerous temptations. I think compromise happens when you kinda don't really think it's gonna be a temptation. If you're like, oh, I'm not really tempted by that, be careful. Um, in fact, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 16, 13, that says, be watchful and stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Um, you know, you gotta realize that there's, there's, uh, there's attack that's gonna come, so you need to sort of be ready for that attack and not underestimate evil. And don't flirt with dangerous temptations. Um, number three, um, a sudden deliberate choice to give in to sin—that um, that's a big thing of compromise. You may have kind of thought you're going to avoid the sin, but then just you're overwhelmed with temptation, and you get to that place where you say, "I don't care. I'm just going to do it." Um, uh, and um, and some will just want to do it regardless of what what people have told you or what you know the Bible says. you know, um, What happens when a, a, you know, a person who's happily married gets to that moment and says, I'm going to commit adultery? Like what happens there? How does a person get to that place in their mind? Um, that one often comes from not really uh, thinking much about it until the choice is right in front of them and they just uh, deliberately bail on all their convictions. And then fourthly, a failure to consider the, cost, cost, uh, the costly uh, consequences of um, the pleasures of sin or the consequences of sin. Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but the the payment is often more than you can bear. Um, To be a person who's not given to compromise, that's the key. That's what the Bible asks of us. And John the Baptist sort of is the the guy that you kind of think, man, Mr. No Compromise. He stood his ground. Yeah, but Brett, he lost. He, he, He died. Yeah, but where is he now? Where's John the Baptist now? In heaven. And uh, do you think John the Baptist was like, man, I wish I would have compromised in my life on earth. Uh, no, uh, I think John the Baptist has a place in heaven uh, that none of us can even really imagine. Um, speaking of this conviction and, and what have you, uh, Philip Brooks was... Um, um, by the way, uh, before I get into that, uh, don't forget what the Bible says about sin. You know, good understanding gives favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. So you can think you're compromising and it's all good, but that's the problem with compromise is you end up having that, uh, that sin, but you end up in real hard shape. Um, so all that to say, um, one of the things that I, I think about, I like about John the Baptist is he's a model for preachers. Uh, as he was a preacher crying in the wilderness. Philip Brooks in 1877 uh, said this in a lecture to preachers at Yale University of all places. Can you imagine? He said this, courage is the indispensable requisite of any true ministry. If you're afraid of men and a slave to their opinion, go and do something else. Go and make shoes to fit them. Go and paint pictures which you know are bad. Hunter Biden. Um, oh, sorry. I should have said that. But but which suit their bad taste? But do not keep all your life preaching. Ser- keep on all your life preaching sermons. Sermons which say not what God sent you to declare, but what they hire you to say. Be courageous. Be independent. Truly, the fear of man lays a snare, and many preachers get caught in it. Wow, can you imagine somebody at Yale saying that, let alone anybody sitting there caring about it? That's kind of an interesting thought right there. Um, But Bible teachers speaking the truth, not to itching ears. It reminds me there, you know, of 2 Timothy 4. It says, the time will come, you know, when men will not endure sound doctrine. But uh, after their own lusts or sins, Paul tells Timothy, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That's a warning that's coming uh, if we're not already there. Um, so controversial, top, controversial topics of the day, um, I feel like pastors and people and you and me, we should, we should be bold uh, speaking about things that are controversial. Um, false teachers that are out there teaching wrong uh, biblical you know notions. I'm amazed at all the kind of newer young pastors that are trying to impress people with their new discovered truths that are actually off course. We gotta be careful. We'll bring you to an old crusty teacher. Yep. Uh, that's probably true, but uh, don't, don't be given in. I'm teaching stuff that was taught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, Athe Creek ever existed. Um, and remember, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Uh, there's this huge temptation for people to have itching ears to hear stuff. Uh, we could, you know, and we could make a long list. Uh, I'm amazed how many pastors are afraid to talk about abortion or um, you know, the sexualization of children, or some of the things that's happening in our world today. Men are not women and men cannot give birth to babies. Like, like pastors should probably be talking about that uh, today. Um, so um, what we do, hearers of the word, what do we do with it? So Herod doesn't really deal with his own sin, living with his, or you know, taking on the wife of his brother. He just deals with John instead. Sometimes people do that to churches and pastors. You know, you come in for marriage counseling or, you know, premarital counseling, and the pastor says, well, you know, here's some things you need to do. If you're gonna be married, here's what you need to do. Uh, and there are requirements, by the way, at Athe Creek, and I've said this a million times. I'm amazed how many people come in uh, for marriage, they wanna be married by a pastor at Creek, which is great. We're happy about that, because a lot of people say, I'll get the justice of the peace and we'll tie the knot, whatever. No, marriage is something you do before God. But a lot of people don't wanna come to Athe Creek and say, well, they'll ask us about my previous marriage. Well, that's kind of part of the deal. Jesus told us to be concerned about that. We talk about that. And I've done old you know, teachings on can a person be married and divorced and then remarried? I believe it's possible, but there's some very strict rules biblically around it because if you do it wrong, you're gonna be guilty of committing adultery. Like the Bible, we gotta take the Bible seriously. And yet it's funny, some people will hear that and go, uh, yeah, whatever, and then they're mad at us. Uh, and they get, they march away angrily. the Creek's a hater church, and they don't... It, it's, just, it's just interesting. I, I see that behavior of Herod Agrippa, even as he, instead of changing his sin, he, he just offed John the Baptist. Um, um, by the way, is persecution like that headed more for America, those speaking the truth here in America? Boy, I sure feel that. I, I wonder if we're not gonna be... You know, Canada's a few years ahead of us on this. Pastors are in jail right now for speaking Truth uh, there in Canada, just even a couple of years ago, but um, you know uh, it, it might start with churches that are speaking the truth losing their tax-exempt status. That's something that states have been threatening for a long time. Churches, uh, if you wonder what that is, you know churches are according to our you know laws of our land, the Constitution, the Declaration. It's kind of a nice thing that churches are uh, tax-exempt because we're supposed to help people around our society, and we do. Um, now, sadly, some churches don't really do that. There obviously are churches who abuse the tax-exempt status, but if they take that away, it basically takes you know the uh, a church's income into half, uh, cuts it in half of what what they would be having. And so, some people say, "Brett, aren't you afraid? What would happen if they took away your uh, tax exemption?" I'd say, "Whatever. We're not gonna we're not gonna worry about that. Um, we're not subject to the government." Um, we uh, have the exercise of religion, the freedom, the, our, our constitution provides for that. And we're gonna keep doing what, I, what, what we're called to do. And so should you, and we should be prayerful about that. But I do think those days are coming where we won't see people love our constitution like maybe they once did. You know, speaking of LGBTQIA, when's that, you know, sermons that I've preached about what the Bible says, when's that gonna be counted as hate speech? And then throwing into prison. Even though it's not hate speech, it's actually love speech. We actually love and care about people, unlike the other side. They could care less about the person. They just have their agenda, which is really sad. Um, you know, so we have to remember that um, this is a time we're living, and I think we're living close to the end. And it reminds me of 2 Peter 3 9 that says, You know, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, that is, of his coming, as some men can't slack this, but his long suffering does are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's what you and I should be doing, like John the Baptist calling out um, the truth and speaking the truth so that more people would come to repentance uh, and know the Lord. I love Peter and John and the other apostles as they stood before the Sanhedrin and said, then Peter and the other apostles answered said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That should be your mantra in these days we're living. Don't be afraid of what men will do to you, but speak the truth in love, but we need to speak the truth. Um, you know, I love that. That's, that's what John the Baptist was all about, if you ask me. And so as we remember his life, um, you know, we know that, 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 that he's a good model for us. Well, there's so much really to cover in this story. If you go forward back to verse seven and eight, um, it says there, uh, you know, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask um, and she, being there, uh, being before instructed of her mother, said, give me here John the Baptist's head and a charger. Um, interesting. Um, in the Middle East, beheadings have always been sort of the way uh, for the people um, uh, to be killed. And even to this day, they're, they're still beheading people in those regions of the world. But um, the thing that cracks me up, by the way, about this, and be careful, all you that come from really liturgical religious traditions, Um, They all claim to have the skull of John the Baptist. Um, I've told you before that uh, one tourist was in a uh, tour in Israel and then went to Rome and they saw the skull of John the Baptist in Jerusalem and then they saw the skull of John the Baptist in Rome and they're like, which one's the real one? And he asked the tour guide and the quick thinking tour guide in Rome said, well, the the skull in Jerusalem, you'll notice is much smaller than the skull in Rome. And so that was John the Baptist's skull when he was a baby. And this is John the Baptist's skull when he was an adult. Um, Yeah. Uh, um, By the way, uh, uh, you can check this article out, but there's actually four heads of John the Baptist that they claim to have it. And one in Athens, France, uh, or pardon me, Amiens, uh, France, and Damascus, Syria, Munich, Germany, and one in Rome, in Italy. Um, and they all claim to have it. By the way, uh, if, did you know if you took all the wood that has been sold in Jerusalem uh, that claims to be a piece of the cross of Christ, you could, they, somebody said you could build five Mayflower ships uh, with the amount of chunks of little pieces of wood of the cross they've sold to gullible tourists there. But be that as it may. Um, all that to say, um, the Herod family had no conviction, and, uh, and so to conclude the matter, verse 12, uh, his disciples came and took up the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. Um, so uh, what would Jesus do with this information? You know, his cousin, um, Jesus did seem to have compassion when people died. Remember when Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus? Um, so what's he gonna do here? Well, it says here in verse 13, it says, When Jesus heard of it, uh, he uh, departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. Um, does Jesus weep or mourn? Uh, not as much as, but he does seem like he wants to get away at this time. He wants to get away and take time to reflect as he often would do. We've, we've already seen that in the story where Jesus would get away. But, um, but he doesn't really have time because people came and the crowds came and thronged him and wanted him to be there for them. And I love this, this word that's used here. And you might mark this in your Bible or in your notes, the word where it says moved with compassion. Um, the word compassion is actually one of those English words that don't really serve the Greek word or do justice to the original word. Um, the original word is kind of this fancy schmancy um, Greek word, a hard word to say. Uh and um, and uh, this word it means um, like the dictionary to be moved as one uh, to one's bowels, for the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. Uh, and deep sympathy. Um, And uh, it's kind of an interesting word. Um, It's the most common word that is um, in the Greek New Testament that does refer to God's compassion, but no one else's. Like God's level of compassion is this Greek word that is used here. If you look up this word in the theological dictionary of the New Testament, which is a good resource for you Bible students, um, it kind of goes into deep um, studies on various words. But um, it says that this verb is used 12 times uh, in the New Testament. Um, six, uh, it's the second of six times it's used here in the Gospel of Matthew. But let me read to you from the theological dictionary of New Testament Greek. It's, um, what is the meaning of uh, splink, uh, uh, splink, uh, splink nizomai? Um Well, it's this. Um, it, it's, it's, the national form of the word, or uh, the nominal form of this word, is originally referred to as the inner parts of a man—the heart, the liver, and so on. It could be used for the inward parts of sacrificial animals, but it became common to use the word in reference to the lower parts of the abdomen, the intestines, and especially the womb, the mother's womb. Um, Theological dictionary says that, um, that in ancient times they believed those were the deepest places of senses and feeling. So that's kind of what it's saying. Jesus was deeply moved with compassion uh, from his innermost being, if you could almost say it that way. That's, that's this word. It's a weightiness. Um, in fact, did you know, this is what the dictionary says, translators were afraid to use this, um, this Greek word, um, or, or you know translate this word because the Greek word has such deep and almost uh, too graphic of meaning. So they were almost afraid to translate it. Um, but uh, we would say it's kind of your gut feeling, your deepest love and passion. This is what Jesus has. Now, the, 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 of the six times Jesus uses this in Matthew, he uses it for two different groups, for sinners and to heal the sick. Those are the people that he splanked, uh, splanked on uh, Jesus looks at you and me with that same compassion, willing to die for us. Well, you know, John 15:13, greater love of, uh, no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus had that kind of compassion on us. So I love that word. It's worthy of study and noting. But it goes on in Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, there it says, um, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said to them, "They need not depart. Give ye them to eat." Now, does this make anybody laugh? This cracks me up. First of all, I crack up because the disciples are trying to tell Jesus what to do. Jesus, send them out of here, man. You got, you got to do this. Like, uh, when do you start bossing Jesus around? And you think, well, that's stupid of them. But is it stupid of us? because I think we boss the Lord around all the time in our prayers, Lord, I want this and do this. And, you know, in Jesus' name, I could do, you know, whatever, we start saying this and that. Do we really know what we're talking about? Um, I think a lot of times we do not. Um, so they're saying, send these people home, they need to eat. But Jesus said, nope, we'll feed them. But I love that Jesus, he, said, he doesn't really say, uh, I've got a real cool plan, just, just follow my lead. He doesn't say that. Um, he says, they don't need to part. give them something to eat. He gives the disciples orders of what to do, but he doesn't give them the how to do it. Does that seem familiar? Have you ever noticed that sometimes the Lord puts something on your heart, and you're like, I think I should probably go do this, but then you think, but how do I do that? Um, And I love that that's the way the Lord works. He always gives you the marching orders, but he doesn't always give you the how. Um, You know, it's funny because, um, you know, Moses was given the call, and uh, he said, go and, you know, set my people free. Oh, what am I supposed to do? I'll t- don't worry, I'll-, I'll take care of you. But, 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 I don't know how to speak. Who made your mouth, Moses? Like, remember the argument that God had with Moses? It's kind of a funny little thing there. That's Moses saying, I don't really know how this is gonna work out. Um, but I love that, um, that the Lord always comes up with a plan. And you know, the plan is always different than what you might think. I love the creativity of our Lord. Um, do you remember the story in Numbers 11? Uh, the Numbers 11, the people were wanting meat to eat. They were sick of, you know, manna. And they kept having manna, so they were, you know, they were, the, the Bible says the ladies figured out creative ways to, um, you know, cook up manna. They had manicotti, but nut bread, stuff like that. <laughs> um, and they made manna in ways they beat it into cakes and make it into a mortar, like they were sick of it. They said, we want meat. And they were really mad. So um, interesting, the Lord says, okay, You'll you'll have meat, uh, but I love it because Moses um, asked this false dilemma question of the Lord in Numbers 11, 22, check this out. Moses says, shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall the fish of the sea be gathered together for them? Fishing or the flocks is what he's saying uh, to suffice them. And the Lord said unto Moses, is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Why does the Lord seem to be a little bit brutal on Moses here? Well, Moses is saying, well, God, are we gonna kill some of our flocks or are we gonna go fishing in the sea? The Lord says, nope, neither. Well, what's gonna happen? Uh, let's do this. Uh, let's say we'll have some quail fly down and they'll fly about this high, just high enough for you to take a baseball bat and whack. And then you can gather baskets. And the Bible says they got each one of them gathered eight homers. See, baseball bats. Um <laughs> You have to read the story. Homer's a unit of measure. But, but um, the, they, they gathered piles of these quail and they started chomping down this, I guess they were tasting like little chicken McNuggets or whatever, and they're just eating these quail. And the Bible says and they ate so much they had quail coming out their nostrils. Yeah, there's a Bible image. Nobody colored that in Sunday school. I should make a coloring book for <laughs> children. I think that'd be great, have quails coming out their nostrils, little feather. <laughs> It'd be great. I just think it'd be hilarious. But anyway, sorry. Um, but you know, sometimes we do that with God. We, we, we say this or that, Lord, this or that. Um, you know who else did that was Joshua just before the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter five. Um, it says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And we know that's a appearance of the Lord himself. Uh, and we know that now, but, um, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us? or for our adversaries? And he said, no. (laughs) Like, I love that, that's so funny. Because it's kinda like, yeah, your view is pretty limited, Joshua. Am I for you or your adversaries? No. Um, Now, um, the Lord knows better than any choice you can make up. I hope you understand that. So here the disciples, They're going to say, man, well, all we got are these five loaves and two fish. We're like, what do we got to do? But just remember when the Lord's, God's commandments are what? His enablements. So when Jesus says, give ye them to eat, the disciples didn't know how, but they should have known, well, he's going to work this out. Um, Now it's easy for us in retrospect to say that. Uh, I don't blame these disciples for going, what in the world is he talking about? But at the same time, you and I don't have as big of an excuse because we have the Bible to show us that the Lord works everything out and we should learn to trust him. And when the Lord tells you to do something, understand verse, Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine, he says, for my thoughts are not as your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Um, how high are the heavens? Well, they get pretty high. And that's the discrepancy between your thoughts and God's thoughts. So just go from here out to like Pluto, measure that. And just, that's the first you know, few seconds. Uh, keep going after that, the, the heavens, the universe, that's how much higher his thoughts are and wiser than yours are. So Jesus, I love this, back to Matthew 14, Jesus wants to feed them all. Uh, he wants to feed the, 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 the crowd here. So in verse 17, and they say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. Um, and he said, bring them hither. Another gospel says we have five th- loaves and two fishes, but what are they among so many? Like there's a doubt kind of embedded in this. Here's a couple of loaves and fish. Um, I think that's, that's kind of funny. What, what does Jesus require to make something happen? Um, just give what you have. Just give what you have and then the Lord will take that and, and, and he'll multiply that. That's, this, this story is so classic in the way the Lord works. So he says, you know, verse 18, bring them uh, hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and he took five loaves, the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. And they had eaten, uh, and they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside the women and children. So when we talk about the feeding of the 5,000, don't forget, it's probably like the feeding of the 12,000. If you do the math of a typical crowd, um, you know, A. C. Creek reached a, a formidable mark a couple summers ago when we did, remember the big barbecue we did out with the purple holes and stuff? We were feeding 5,000 that day Uh, and it was crazy. It was a lot of people, but but these were modern times and we didn't have Jesus with us uh, in the flesh, Uh, but uh, we we were able to feed the 5,000. But um, the staff was like, whew, that's a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun too. Uh, we'll probably break that record maybe this next summer. We'll see. Um, but uh, but, but the, the feeding of the 5,000 uh, was really probably 12,000. And, and uh, it was with five loaves and two fish. Now, uh, don't be duped by these commentators that try to diminish the miracles of the Bible. Um, I, uh, some years ago, William Barclay uh, popularized the idea that there was nothing miraculous here in the multiplication of the loaves and fish. But when the crowd saw the generosity of the boy they were moved to share what they had hidden in their sleeves. And they started pulling out loaves of Wonder Bread, you know, out of their sleeves, and some fish that they just happened to have stashed in their sleeves too. And they multiplied, but you know, it takes more faith to believe that. That's just people trying to sort of uh, over-explain the text. This was a miracle, don't explain away the miracles. Again, I refer to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can believe that, the feeding of the 5,000 is no big deal, amen? Amen. So let's just believe the miracles that Jesus did and he still does them today and we see that. So don't sell short the miracles. There's a, there's a neat little thing that he does here though that I think is noteworthy. Notice, whenever Jesus prayed, he never bowed his head and closed his eyes and folded his hands thus. But he actually looked up in heaven most of the time. Um, did you know it's okay if you wanna to pray to look up in heaven or look out? or look, I mean, I don't think there's rules. I think we, your mom made you close your eyes probably because you were distracted and that was probably a good idea. Johnny, you know, close your eyes at dinner table. Stop pulling your sister's hair uh, during prayer time. So yeah, there's, there's a place for bowing your head and I think there's some goodness of that, especially in a very distractible world that we live in. But um, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he, and he, and he blessed, blessed it. Now, there's three things that he did. He blessed it. He broke it and gave it. That's what it says there in our text. Um, You know, when Jesus is in it, it's gonna be blessed. Um, And that's what happened with Moses. When remember Moses, they said, who made your mouth? And the Lord blessed Moses and gave him the words to say to Pharaoh. Um, Also, Jesus broke the bread. There's a picture there that I think is really cool um, because oftentimes the Lord uses the broken people and the broken things. He blesses it, but he broke it. Um, remember, Moses was a, his, had a staff of authority. He had to throw it down before he could take it up. Remember, he cast it down to the ground and then he pick, became a serpent. So for what it really was, the rod in the Bible speaks of authority. And Moses had to sort of throw that down first and then take it up a different way. Kind of a whole nother story there. Um, but um, you know, sometimes before you can be used by the Lord, you need to be broken by the Lord, and there's something that as well. So he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it. And that kind of speaks of his equipping, giving us what we need. He, t- he gave the disciples the multiplied bread and fishes, and thus the people ate. And this is what Jesus does. Don't be afraid to step out on a limb, even though you don't have the resources, or the talent, or the giftings, or the wherewithal. That's where the Lord really does shine, and he 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 often used you. He'll bless you and even break you. And then he'll give you that which you need. So the feeding of the 5,000, what a great story. Well, verses 22 through 33, we looked at in depth and we had 12 points on Sunday. And you can review that study uh, from last week or last Sunday, last Saturday, uh, if you missed that. Um, And then we have to kind of finalize here the last few verses of chapter 14, where it says in verse 34, And when they were gone over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Does anybody know where is Gennesaret? Anybody? Hello? It's in Israel. That's really good. You're zeroing it in. We talked about this. The word Gennesaret means harp. Anybody? Galilee, yes. I said that last week. So you were listening, one person in the back. That was good. No, I'm just messing with you guys. Yeah, Kineseret, um or, or Gennesaret, uh or Kinneret uh, is another name. If you go to Galilee today and you're looking for the Sea of Galilee, look for the sign that says Kinneret, which is another way of saying the old word, Knesseret. Gine- uh, uh, which is uh, uh, the way of saying even older Galilee, okay? You'll see signs with Galilee stuff once you get to the Sea of Galilee, because they're Bible sites, and you'll say, oh, the Sea of Galilee here. But it, the people of Israel don't really think of it as Galilee as much as they, they call it uh, Kinneret uh, or Gennesaret. Just, just, just a heads up on that one. So they've gone over and came back across the sea, you know, into the, the Sea of Galilee area again. And verse 35, when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Wow. We, we, we see this, you know, the woman who touched the hem of his garment before in the previous stories, um, now that word got around man. and all you gotta do is just touch the hem of his garment. Bam, you're bada bing, you're good to go. You're healed. What was the deal with the hem of the garment? This is something we miss uh, in our modern vernacular, knowing what the hem of the garment was. Um, but you should know this, this is important. Because remember when David cut the hem of, Paul, of Saul's uh, garment there in the cave, um, uh, a, a dulem there, where, where he could have killed King Saul, but instead he cuts the, the fringe or the hem of his garment? Um, it wasn't that he just said, I have a piece of cloth to prove that I was there. Cutting his fringe or his hem uh, was an insult really. It was saying, this is a symbol of your authority and your power as king and I've cut it. That's why David sort of had remorse after, said, I can't believe I shouldn't have done this thing and cut the robe of the Lord's anointed. There was more to it than just cutting a robe. It was cutting the hem or the fringe of his garment. Now this would be, um, you know, the the sewn on garment probably um, at the base of his robe. Um, some believe, and there's arguments about what this is. Was it a fringe, hem, or tassel? Um, you say, well, Brett, I don't care about that. Oh, it's an important thing. Because Jews and the rabbis to this day have tassels hanging out of their garments. You know, they'll let their tassels just kind of, just show a little bit of holiness uh, creeping out the bottom of their, their garments. Have you ever seen that? The little tassels just kind of flapping in the wind back here. That's to show how holy we are. We're doing my prayers and stuff. Um, Well, anyway, all that to say, um, I see Christians, by the way, wearing those. uh, And they're usually the messianic churches that kind of say, wear those little tassels to show. I just think that that um, is actually going back to Old Testament practices that were no longer really under those rules. Where did that whole thing come from? Well, as it turns out, jot it down in your notes, Numbers chapter 15. Verses 38 and 39. Speak unto the children of Israel, bid the, them that they make them fringes in the border of their garments throughout their generations and that they put upon the fringe. And that's the word. Fringe, you could, you could translate that fringe, hem, or tassel. Uh, that's kind of a key word there. The fringe of the borders of uh, a ribband of blue. Does anybody, you guys that are into have, uh, biblical uh, typology, does remember what blue speaks of? Huh? Royalty is purple. Heaven, that's right. Uh, heaven is blue, um, which is kind of interesting. And and part of that, well, let's read on. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember the commandments of the Lord. So um, there's two things the blue fringe was to remind them of. Um, uh, is one is the, to remember the commandments uh, and do them, and that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which... Uh, ye used to go whoring. So remember the commandments, but then also some scholars suggest because of the blue color, blue also in the tabernacle was sort of a reminder of heaven and uh, eternity with the Lord in heaven. That's kind of the idea. It was supposed to remind them to, to be heavenly minded, not just worldly minded. Is kind of the idea there, but, it, but also a keeping of the commandments. Um, so um, you know, so here's like an example of the, of the little fringes you'll see the Jews have to this day. Um, but some people say no, it was more like a sash. Others say no, it was at the bottom of the hem, kind of like if you had a a hem on a dress or something, uh, or something that's, so there's arguments about what that really was. But the thing that you have to understand is Jesus was a practicing Jew. We forget that. Um, A lot of people think Jesus was a surfer from Southern California, because you saw the picture. He's like, yeah, bro, tasty waves and all that stuff. That wasn't Jesus. That's that's the Americanized version of Jesus. Jesus was a practicing Jew and he would have had something probably like this that he would have worn. And those little tassels had to do with the prayer of the Jews and what have you. But it was meant to remember the hope in heaven and God's commandments uh, and the great road to get to heaven was all about that. By the way, we're supposed to be that way without the tassels and the hem. Um, Colossians 3, one and two says, if you be then risen with Christ, which you and I are, if you're a Christian, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God and set your affection on things above and not on things of earth. So um, this is what we do. So these people were looking to Jesus's hem. They knew that he was something special, but they thought, man, if we could just touch the hem of his garment, and then they would be healed, and they did. Later, we're gonna see Paul the apostle doing like similar things. They'd they'd take Paul's sweatbands um, because he was a tent maker. He probably had some sweatbands that he used when he was making tents in that hot hot climate. Uh, And he'd throw his sweatbands aside, and people would sneak in and just touch his sweatbands and get healed. what is it, Brett? Are there, is there power literally in the hem of Jesus's garment? Was there power literally in the sweatbands of Paul? Um, here's where the power is. The power is in the Lord himself. Uh, that's only where the power is. Well, then why did the Lord use these little implements? I think the Lord used these implements as sort of points of faith, where the people were like, is Jesus really gonna be able to heal me? And for some reason, them feeling like they could touch Jesus. They felt like that that was the point that help them believe. And what I marvel at is that the Lord says, I'll use that. It's almost like, as I read the Bible, it's almost like the Lord said, I can use anything. I can use spit and mud to make a blind man see. Did Jesus need to use spit and mud? No, he could have said see. And the guy could have seen. Why did he use spit and mud? Well, it took a little faith for the guy to sort of be washed and cleansed. And, and also Jesus sort of signed on with medicine. That was the medicine of the day. They thought mud and spit had medicinal properties. And so Jesus said, I can use that. And I can use the hem of a garment and I can use Paul's sweatbands, but it's not about the sweatbands. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit to do works through Jesus Christ through us. Um, and that's where the real power is. But I think those were just touch points of faith that sort of help people have faith in the true and living Lord. So there it is, Matthew chapter 14. Again, we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more there, but we're gonna come to some controversial questions in chapter 15. Uh, And a lot of Bible struggle, people struggle with some of the verses in chapter 15. We're gonna cover those next week. Uh, Let's pray together. And Lord, we're so thankful for your word and the story here once again, how thankful we are that um, that compassion, that deep-seated compassion, heartfelt compassion that we don't even have an English word that really translates. How thankful we are for that, Lord, that you have compassion upon us, your people, that you love us, that your loving kindness is better than life, that your mercy endures forever. Lord, even though we're messed up sinners who failed, you still have a place and a plan for us. How thankful we are. Lord, I pray that um, as we go our way that we just meditate on your word and just continue to think through these scriptures. Um, day and night, and be like the tree firmly planted by the river of water. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.